the theme this morning, and, and two, it was sort of, well, it's, it's fortunate. I, I happen to be an expert on the topic. He, he knows, he's just a young bloke, he knows nothing about lust. I've had plenty of practice. Um, in terms of the term, uh, epithumia, desire, passionate longing, lust. And it's important for us to understand that uh, the term isn't in and of itself negative or a problem. It can take a negative turn, but the term can also have a positive connotation. And I think to to emphasise that, at the risk of um, having some people blush, I'm going to take a few readings from the Song of Solomon which frankly is a scripture that highlights the, the erotic sexual nature of love in an appropriate way. And sometimes we might, I think, forget that. So listen, listen along as we read from Song of Solomon as two lovers celebrate one another. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Now, that might sound a bit funny to us, but at this time and place, that was a very meaningful picture. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon, your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like the clusters of fruit. I said I will climb the palm tree and I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes sent out their fragrance and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. Now, I want to suggest to you that we have no problem with that because that's the Bible 
and so we know whatever is being spoken of there must be okay because God wouldn't include it in his word if it weren't so. And that's true, that's true. But we must not overlook, we must not miss the point. That is erotic imagery as two lovers celebrate one another. Which leads us to the question, when we talk about lust, is that lust or is it something else? And we're confronted with that question daily, today. Hmm. I think, for example, the question about pornography, for example. Is that pornography or is it indeed a work of art? A few of us, I suspect, would look at the works of the classic masters, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, etc., and look at their paintings of nudes as they celebrate the human form. Few of us, I would think, in our minds would wander towards the question, well, is that pornography or what? It wouldn't even enter our minds, for many of us, I'm sure. But it is the human form without clothes on. And so why why would we not consider that pornography? Why would we not consider that? Um, my inexperience here, I want to say Bills and Moon, but Moon and Bills or whatever it is, that series of, of I take it, mushy sort of love stories. But that's kind of nice stuff, isn't it? It's not... It's not over-sexualised. Whatever the equivalent of Mills and Boone is in a, in a over-sexualised sense, let's say, uh, why doesn't that fit into that, into that category? These are very real and interesting questions and I hope, at least in part, I can help us sort of work through that this morning from a, from a biblical perspective. As Uncle Screwtape the demon tutor wrote to his pupil Wormwood in the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, He, that is the enemy, God, made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. And I think C.S. Lewis rather cleverly here touches upon a fundamental truth. God has created pleasure. And he intends, as the creator of pleasure, he intends for us to enjoy pleasure. So the problem is not in pleasure itself, but the, the problem is in what I would term misdirected pleasure. Something that is legitimate, but that is used in the wrong way or to the wrong degree in the wrong context. You might recall um, we talked in the past somewhat about the virtues, and I think it's helpful to think of passion. Epithemia, which is the Greek term we're talking about, right? Translated lust, among other terms in, in our English Bibles. If we think of passion as a virtue, and passion is a virtue, but you might recall that we noted a virtue almost always has both a deficiency and an excess. A deficiency of passion, I would, for example, suggest is indifference. 
when a person is not emotionally moved or touched. There's something wrong with that. There's something missing in that. We look at or are faced with a tragedy and we maintain our stiff upper lip. Well, I guess in some cultural context that might be admirable. admirable but, but in reality, the lack of passion is, there, is precisely that. It is a deficiency. It is something's wrong there. Something's dysfunctional there. Passion is the right and good virtue. An injustice occurs and we meet it with indifference. There's something wrong there. There's something lacking there. It's passion, the goodness of passion as God has designed it for us, is what motivates us to act. To celebrate. To address or redress the wrong. To celebrate and deeply appreciate the good. And of course in terms of excess, that's where this little term lust, I think, belongs. It is to take a legitimate emotion and expression, pleasure, passion, but to take it to a degree where it becomes harmful, excessive. I'm reminded of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount Probably when we think about lust from a Christian point of view, this is perhaps one of the first texts our minds might wander to. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, you'll remember Jesus said, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And here Jesus makes a contrast between adultery on the one hand, lust on the other. Or actually he redresses the contrast that presumably, let's say the scribes and Pharisees in the audience were differentiating. The Bible says it's wrong to commit adultery. And adultery, I guess simply defined, is, is to um, uh, a sexual intrusion upon a, a marriage. That's wrong. But it seems that some of the Jews, at least, were saying, therefore, anything up to, but as long as it's short of adultery, is okay. And Jesus strongly heads off that way of thinking. Effectively, Jesus addresses the, uh, or invites us to, to look at and consider the, the root of the problem, not just the fruit of the tree, in this case adultery, to look at the fruit of the problem, lust in this case. And if that's where we address our behaviour and our thinking, it will never have the opportunity to grow into the tree and bear the fruit of adultery. Here, it's interesting, I think it's important to remember the context by introducing adultery, Jesus is talking about a marriage. And so a man might look at a married woman, lust after her in, in his heart. Man, I wish she was mine and not his. Here we have that self-indulgence, self-centeredness at the expense of the other, at the expense of both the object of the lust, the woman in this case, 
but also her husband. And we're reminded immediately, I'm sure, of the incident with um, David and Bathsheba and Uriah. And I don't need to labour the connection there, except to highlight the tragedy it was as a result of David's lust for Bathsheba, the tragedy that flowed from that. Broken relationships, loss of life, Uriah, the child, tragedy. And so we might think today in a modern context, we might think of things like pornography, lusting after, I guess, adults, but children as well, and that that creates, that feeds an industry which leads to extraordinary suffering in the world and exploitation in the world. Indeed, exploitation is something that, that I want you to notice in this connection. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Because Paul here is writing to Christians, it's God's will for us as the children of God that we be sanctified, that we be holy, that we be set apart from the world for his purposes, to serve as his instruments, to thereby bring glory and honour to him, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Notice what he says next. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. It seems to me that there is a strong hint here as to what is inappropriate in terms of what we might call lust or pornography or any of those sort of sexual sin that we might sort of think in the same, the same terms. The common denominator, it seems to me, is that all of those things seek to exploit the other person, whether that be a young teenage girl that we want to pick out. and Well, we don't do it anymore because it's all online. Do you know that Playboy has gone into demise because it couldn't compete with all of the pornography available online? It became commercially unviable for them. Extraordinary. And some of us might say, hey man, what a good thing. Well, you know what, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy because that means the market out there is so great and it is so flooded, it's just multiplied the problem many times over. Many times over. Or the tragedy of pedophilia and, and, and children becoming the objects of, of the depraved affection of, of adults. Victims, exploitation all around. That's the problem and the essence of lust. In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life And therefore anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. 
So self-control is the call rather than taking advantage of the other. Again, another Old Testament example comes readily to mind. And, and I think David recently touched on this in a lesson. So again, I won't dwell on this except to remind you of the incident with um, Amnon, uh, the firstborn son of David, who lusted after his sister Tamar, who was the sister of Absalom, and we know how things flowed from there, uh, how Absalom rebelled against his father David and the tragedies that flowed there. All of that flowing from this initial lust, this excessive self-centred desire that a brother had towards his sister or half-sister. Love does not exploit the other. Can I remind you of those beautiful words that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 that are nice trot out at a wedding. They are inappropriate, but their application is broader than that. This is how we ought to be building our lives. This is the, this is the paradigm through which we ought to be living our lives in relation to one another. Remember the fundamental will of God for us is to what? To love God and to love our neighbour. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So misdirected love, ultimately, as screw tape was taught, the trick for us from the devil's point of view is to take the goodness that the enemy that God has created, that which is legitimate, and to twist it, to corrupt it, to misdirect it. That's the trick. That's the trick. Listen to John's words in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. So we ask the question, what does John mean by the world? This is what he means. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. These things come not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, if you're the good Bible students that I know you all are, you're going to read that and think, hmm, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and pride of life. That sounds familiar. That sounds familiar. And you'd be right. John is speaking here with Genesis chapter 3 in mind. Let's read that text. The serpent was craftier than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes. Here we go. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. I want to borrow the language of James, which we've got to look at in a very short moment. Some of you might recognise this from a couple of months ago, uh, a lesson that tragically ran long and there wasn't time to walk through it. And so I'm glad to have this opportunity to explain it more fully because I think it's useful. I think it's practical for us as Christians. To use James's language, which we'll look at more closely in a moment, a process you'll notice, moving from left to right, begin with desire, then the process of being lured and enticed, and then finally culminating, if the process continues to that um, consummation, if you will, desire is conceived and sin is the result. In the case here, think about the narrative and think about what we have, what, what we're told about here. She saw... The fruit, the temptation is laid out for her. She sees that it's tasty, it's attractive and it's prestigious. Um, Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Or the three Ps as I would sort of want to um, uh, describe it. Pleasure, possessions and power. Pleasure, possessions and power. The love of the world as John describes it in 1 John. But notice, these are legitimate drives the problem isn't with pleasure or having possessions or even having some degree of power the problem lies in their being misdirected misused and abused and I want you to notice too in defence of Eve this initial temptation was beyond her control and what I mean by that is it came to her from outside This isn't something that she conceived of and devised internally and said, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to knock God off his throne and take his place. That didn't come from within her. That came from without in the form of the serpent. And so in that sense, at this point in time, Eve is not to be blamed for the beginning of the process of temptation. But we enter into the critical Period. Now she's entertaining that desire. The temptation's been laid out by the serpent. And the seed of dissatisfaction has been sown. Yeah, did God say that, you know what, God's really holding out on you? He's holding you back. And so we have the critical moment for Eve. Do I believe the lie or do I believe God? And of course she took the bait 
And here we have the human tragedy, the fallacy of autonomy. We all think we can run our own lives, do things our own way. That's the essence of the meaning of that, that phrase, becoming like God, knowing good and evil. You get to determine what good and evil is. Well, no, that's God's prerogative alone. What we get is the choice of whether we will obey God or not. Which way we'll choose, to choose what God says is good or to choose what God says is evil. But we don't get to make the rules, as it were, as was the false promise that the serpent offered to, um, to Eve. And then, of course, the point at which the desire is conceived, as James describes it, this is the point of sin. They take the fruit and they eat it and they encourage others to do the same. You see the subtlety there, Eve, Eve takes it and then she shares with Adam. And it seems to me there's a, a high degree of culpability there on the part of Adam. He was there apparently throughout this process. But he didn't seemingly say a word. He didn't intervene to protect his wife. He just let things unfold. And as she went to share with him, he, he received it. I'm reminded of uh, the, the, the concluding words of um, the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 1, speaking of that, 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 that tragic process of humanity turning its back upon God, you'll remember. Without excuse, because we knew the truth, but we rejected the truth. And he concludes that whole section with words, I'm paraphrasing, how did it go? They not only know that it's wrong, but they encourage others to do wrong as well. Come and join us. Come and join us in the party. I think there's a reflection of that here with Adam and Eve. At this point, you'll notice, they're open-eyed sinners. This is chosen behaviour leading to habitual sin. It's interesting, just as a side note almost from a a developmental point of view, when we think of this picture of sin as it's described in Genesis chapter 3, we think of the question around what's what's the relationship between sin and and, and a human being? Um, And and some have come back and said, oh, uh, children are born in sin. original sin or total depravity or whatever language you want to use. I want to argue that the concept just doesn't match up with what Scripture says here. And here I highlight that in terms of an infant, an infant is developmentally incapable of sin if sin is understood as a a transgression of God's law, either a going beyond or, or a falling short of God's law. An infant is incapable of that. And even a child and even into adolescent years, there seems to be a grey area there. We think about um, this stage of being lured and enticed. The developing child come adolescent, developing abstract thinking and experimenting, etc. But I want to argue that it's not until you reach the point of desire is conceived, equivalent to adulthood, 
where you've got full culpability for one's actions, full accountability to God for one's actions. And of course, the question there, which we don't have time to, to look at this morning, but the question is, well then what is the age of accountability? That step from, from let's say, adolescence to adulthood and full accountability. Where, where, does, that, where does that fit? And we've got some hints and, and indications <laughs> in the scriptures, um, but again, that's for another time and, and another place. To look closely at James's description here in James chapter 1. No one when tempted should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then, when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. So that same, that same movement from left to right, from desire, then through the process of being lured and enticed and then culminating in the conception of desire or sin. I want to use here an example of same-sex attraction. It's very um, topical today. Uh, here we have that desire and without, without exploring or, or questioning the, the origins of such desires, for some people that desire is a reality in their experience. How much of it's nurture, how much of it's nature, etc. There are all sorts of debates out there. We'll just deal at face value with the reality, for the experience of some people. Same-sex attraction. And this leads to an identity dilemma. There are unchosen thoughts and emotions that are beyond one's control. Remember Eve's experience? The temptation came to her from without. No blame for her, no shame for her. It came from outside. And so we might consider the issue of same-sex attraction as something through no fault of a person, through whatever circumstance, they happen to experience this. And then the process of being lured and enticed. And here's the critical issue. What are you doing with this initial desire? And here we would describe a, a homosexual orientation. The person is making a decision about how am I going to orient myself in relation to this temptation. And so I'm wrestling with the issue of identity development and fundamentally I'm making a choice whether I'm going to be a slave of righteousness or a slave of sin. And finally, if it goes to this, the consummation of the process, embracing a gay or lesbian identity and lifestyle, and here is an identity synthesis. I've taken the, the, the desire and the enticement and I've pulled that in and that becomes what identifies me and I act on that part. And so here this is chosen behaviour. And here from a biblical perspective, this is the point of accountability before God. As we all are in all issues accountable to God for the choices that we make. I want to suggest to you that uh, when Jesus spoke, as we read before in the Sermon on the Mount, um, uh, about the idea of a person lusting after another in their heart, that they've committed adultery, I I want to suggest to you that Jesus is painting a picture of a scenario where a person has reached the point where I would if I could. I would if I could. Because the reality is many times... We might be confronted with sin and it's only the lack of opportunity that holds us back. But I would if I could. And so Jesus can rightly call that, that's equivalent to the act. Because all that lacks is the opportunity. So, to conclude, 
two texts I want to draw to your attention. And I want you to, as you read these, I want you to think about that phrase in the middle, properly directed love. Properly directed love. Both quotes from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Rome. First from Romans chapter 12. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. What is love? God is love. And God's will is an expression of his love. And so as we conform our thinking, our behaviour to the revealed will of God, we are rightly directed to love. Notice Paul's words a little bit earlier in the letter, Romans chapter 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. It's that simple. It's that simple. What is the objective? What is the purpose of Christianity? To bring each one of us into conformity with the image of his son. His son who is the express image of the father. And so, again, it would seem logical and simple the more we conform ourselves in following Jesus, becoming like Jesus, the Son of God, the more we are being restored to the image of God as God originally created us. We are laying hold of God's original purpose for us and in so doing becoming fully and authentically Human as image bearers. And so notice how Jesus here is described that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He's the model. He is the, the peer. He is the mentor. He is the example. He's the trailblazer. Our big brother, if you will, Jesus. And we, in following him, are seeking to be his little brothers and his little sisters. Following him, imitating him, reflecting him as he reflects the Father. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? For if God is for us, who can be against us? God is on our side. God is on our side. Things like lust in our experience might seem difficult. Might seem difficult. But if we understand God in his son, and if we understand God's purposes for us, and that God is on our side, 
We truly can, as the Apostle Paul intimates, we can renew our mind. We can resist being conformed to the world. We can truly pursue Christ-likeness, walking in the spirit rather than in the flesh.